everybody. Welcome back to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. We're on to episode 52. And today I've got some questions that I'm going to take uh, at the end of the episode talking about uh, growth rings, specifically how trees grow, uh, checking that you're going to find and run across in logs. And I want to talk a little bit about jobs in the lumber industry, specifically purchasing jobs. But the primary thing that I want to focus on this episode is exterior woods. We're coming up on the timer of this recording on summer. Uh, it is spring now and people are kind of getting outside, enjoying the weather and woodworkers everywhere are thinking about building outdoor furniture. So let's talk about exterior woods and, you know, name some species, but more importantly, what is it about those species that makes them good exterior woods? So first and foremost, like I say, every single episode, thank you to my patrons who continue to support this show. Always uh, a, a wonderful thing when I see a new patron uh, sign up for a dollar, two dollars, 50 cents or annual or whatever. However, Patreon offers so many different options now. Just go to patreon.com slash lumber update and you can find all kinds of ways to support the show. Thank you to everyone who does that. I greatly appreciate it. Um, some feedback from a previous week, actually the previous episode, I talked about the teak embargo and I was talking about an example where using Iroko could be a good option for like an interior floor. And I got an email from Leonid who said, and not exactly a lumber update question, more of woodworking question. And I, I do try to keep the woodworking questions for wood talk and keep the lumber questions over here, but this actually plays nicely into it. He says, can you explain how the Iroko veneer flooring was made that you spoke about in your episode? Did the yard just glue strips of veneer to full sheets of plywood and lay it down? I couldn't really find any information about doing a plywood floor with hardwood veneer. And what are some worries one would have putting a quarter inch veneer on plywood for flooring? So I, I wanted to talk about this because it does speak a little bit to well, several episodes, certainly my plywood series, but also just this ongoing theme about what are your specifications, what's important to you, and choosing the operation, choosing the material based on what's important to you. So one could say that technically, yes, we resawed out some sheets of veneer, um, you know, thick veneer in this case. Uh, it it uh, was... Sorry, it wasn't a quarter inch. It's actually a little bit under that, a little undersized a quarter, but for all intents and purposes, it's a quarter inch, just a little shy of that. So we did glue those uh, sheets down to a plywood. But the important part is it wasn't just like going to your big box store or even going to a specialty plywood dealer and buying, you know, a four by eight sheet of plywood, gluing the veneer down and then cutting it into strips and tongue and grooving it based upon the width specification. In the instance of composite floor, or laminate flooring, where you have essentially a plywood core with some sort of face veneer. In this case, we were using a hardwood Iroko veneer for the top. Some veneers are going to be thinner than others, just like you would expect with, with plywood. Some face veneers are thinner than others. A laminate that's using a plastic laminate on the top has a, a very thin veneer because it is quite durable. Um, hardwood laminate flooring, you'll find in variety of thicknesses. You'll also find at a variety of price points. You can go to the same manufacturer of hardwood flooring and find, say, cherry hardwood laminate flooring and find different price points. And a lot of that is dependent upon not only the grade of the veneer, what kind of defects are allowed in the veneer, the width, the actual surface width. Are you getting six inch wide flooring, eight inch wide flooring, four inch wide flooring? The lengths, you can have some random length. Um, but also the actual thickness of the veneer. You will find some flooring manufacturers who will specify a thicker cut of veneer. And 
The reason that that's certainly going to cost more, certainly you're using more of the log, but there's also greater consideration that must be taken into the preparation of that veneer before it is glued down to the laminate. The next thing is what is the, uh, excuse me, before it's glued down to the, the, the laminated plywood core. The other thing to think about is what is that plywood core? This is something where it's going to have to have joinery cut into it. And when you look at a, a laminate hardwood flooring, the, the hardwood veneer is the, the surface. There's no joinery cut into that. In other words, the joinery is set below the face veneer. The joinery is all put into the, the plywood core. Or you think of it a, 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 of a, another way, you've got a tongue and groove flooring and the tongue is cut specifically deep enough so that the tongue is solely in the plywood below it. But if you're ever looking for plywood and you know that you're going to cut joinery onto the plywood, the most important thing is no voids, zero voids. And, you know, that's going to produce, you know, no delamination issues. If there's voids that can create gaps that can cause delamination, it could cause tear out while you're routing that tongue or that groove on there. So you want a high quality plywood that the grade of that plywood calls for zero voids. What generally is happening in a flooring manufacturer plant, it's not like they're taking four by eight sheets of plywood. They're laying up veneer and they're generally buying it. There are some companies that do it all from stem to stern, but a lot of times they're actually buying laminate blanks and they are cutting those blanks to a specific size, gluing the laminate onto them and then routing the, the joiner from there. So if you think about it, if you've ever used a router table um, to put tongue and groove joinery on and say you want a six inch face. You don't start with an eight inch wide board and then wrap the tongue on that. You start with the board that is generally six and three eighths because your three eighths inch joinery, you've got a three eighths inch groove on one side, three eighths inch deep groove on one side and a three eighths inch long tongue on the other. So you've actually got to cut back the edge by three eighths in order to reveal that tongue. So you start with a board that's six and three eighths inches wide, and then you route the veneer from there. So there's no reason to start with a four foot by eight foot piece of plywood or a 12 foot piece of plywood. If you're going to end up making six inch wide flooring, or making 12 inch wide flooring, you're going to want to saw down that blank so that it's to your final size. In other words. So in this case, we, uh, worked and outsourced with a flooring company that had sourced or manufactured. I think in this case, they actually manufactured the plywood flooring. And if you look at laminate flooring, it's going to be very similar to what a lot of people will call Europly or architectural grade plywood. It's that stuff that's got like 13 plies and a half inch, you know, absolutely zero voids, incredibly stable, incredibly sound material because that is your substrate. It's got to be dead flat. It's got to stay flat and it's got to be able to cut joinery into it. So that's the plywood we're using. The veneer over top of it, because we specifically, A, we're doing wide plank flooring. So we knew that the veneer itself was going to be wide and subject to some movement issues. It needed to be dead dry, super, super dry. So we resawed it down um, close to thickness. Then we, um, <laughs> why can't I think of the tool? Belt sanded, good Lord. Wide belt sanded the veneer down to the finished thickness, down to the thousands of an inch. Um, I'm sorry, we actually, um, why can't I think of belt sander? What's wrong with me? <laughs> we used the wide belt sander to get it down to 
within a couple thousands of an inch, dried it down in the kiln, and then belt sanded it again to final thickness down to the final thousands of an inch measuring. And then that was then glued to the substrate um, using a vacuum press. There are some that will actually glue it to the substrate and then sand it down to final thickness from there. We had the tolerances already dialed in from the manufacturer of the laminate flooring. So technically, yes, we were just gluing veneer down to plywood, but it's not what you think of like a four by eight sheet of plywood. These were longer strips. They were about 20 feet long, um, specific that flooring laminate blanks is what it, it came out to be flooring laminated blanks. I keep saying laminate, laminated blanks. In other words, plywood, but it is plywood specifically to be made into flooring. So it's a different thickness. It's certainly a higher quality of laminations. The laminations themselves have been dried perfectly uniform. The glue is of a higher grade with a very high quality control to make sure that all comes together to form what in a four by eight sheet of plywood would be a very, very expensive sheet of plywood. Look up architectural ply or Euro ply, and you'll be looking at $150 a sheet minimum. And that's for the thin stuff. A lot of that stuff is running $300 a sheet and three quarter inch thicknesses. It's like the highest quality plywood out there that doesn't include like a hardwood face veneer. So anyway, long answer to that, but I wanted to bring it up because it, it kind of plays into what we've been talking about. If you know what your specifications are, what's important to you in your final product, you can choose the elements that comprise that final product. So there you go, Leonid. <laughs> long answer for what should have been a simple, uh, <laughs> simple question. So let's talk about exterior woods a little bit. First thing, you know, I, I can just list some. White oak is a great exterior wood. Um, black locust is another good exterior wood. Western red cedar, great exterior softwood. Douglas fir is a great exterior softwood. Those are kind of the, the ones that come to mind domestically. Um, you get into exotic species and most tropical woods are going to be good exterior woods. Like all of the Africans, all the African mahoganies, I just did an episode of mahogany, African mahogany or kaya is a great exterior wood. Sapili is a great exterior wood. Utili is a great exterior wood. Genuine mahogany is a good exterior wood. I say good exterior wood, not a great exterior wood. And a lot of that comes down to the hardness, but that will depend again on how you're using it. Back to this whole idea of what's important to you. If it's a siding, you know, there's not really gonna, you're not gonna walk on it. You can get away with a softer hardness. Frankly, you're not going to use genuine mahogany because it's too expensive and it's harder to get in volume for exterior projects. But if you're a small shop or an individual building, say, a bench, genuine mahogany might work. But I would probably recommend something like Sapili over genuine mahogany just because of the added hardness will be more durable for something that you're actually sitting on or maybe sliding across concrete pavers or something like that. But when you start getting into like the tropicals, cocoa below, great exterior wood, you know, teak is kind of synonymous with exterior woods. It's like the king of exterior woods. The thing with the tropical woods is they're all very, very oily. They're very dense. They're very resinous. And that's really at the heart of what makes a good exterior wood. So I kind of wanted to break this down into really mm, five, maybe six areas. The first is what's known as tylos. Um, and maybe I'm pronouncing that wrong. Tylosis. I think it's tylos. That's how I pronounce it. T-Y-L-O-S-E-S. -E tylos is like caulk. You know, when you, you put in a, a new tub or you just tiled your bathroom, you run a bead of caulk around the edge, you know, that seals everything off. You might run caulk along weather stripping. You might actually run it along your crown molding. If you, uh, didn't get the perfect right fit there, it, 
seals off the the tile to the tub junction or the shower floor or something like that. Tylos is like caulk, but it goes in the pores of the wood itself. So a perfect example of this is red oak and white oak. The both species have very, very large pores, but white oak is crammed full of tylos. And if you look at the ingrain of white oak, you will see this kind of whitish crystalline substance that's packed inside the pores. That's caulk. What that's doing is preventing water from actually leaching up into the wood. Whereas red oak, if you stick red oak, um, I remember watching Roy Underhill do this on the Woodwright shop. You can stick red oak in like a bowl of water, blow on the opposite end like a straw, and you can actually make bubbles. But if you do that with white oak, you will get no bubbles because the pores are stopped up with that tylos. Another species that has a lot of tylos is black locust. A lot of it. You look at the ingrain of black locust and it's almost kind of shiny because the pores are so jam-packed full of the tylos. And like red oak and white oak, black locust has quite large pores. So just capillary action alone should allow water to wick up in that board relatively quickly, but the tylos stops all of that. Whereas red oak, if you were to stick red oak in um, a bowl of water, you will actually see the, the wood darken as it wicks moisture up into those pores. Red oak is not a good exterior wood, but here is the perfect example. The, the difference between red oak and white oak primarily is the tylos. The tylos in the wood makes white oak a good exterior species. So that's the first thing. And there, there are lots of examples of wood that have tylos in the pores, both um, domestic to North America, as well exotic all over the globe. That's kind of the common one because white oak really is, is probably the most common exterior hardwood in North America. The next thing we want to look at is extractives. And I've talked about extractives before. This can be uh, turpentine. Turpentine is an extractive that comes from wood. Um, uh, walnut oil, teak oil, uh, Danish oil, maple syrup. These are all extractives. We extract this product from a species of tree to create another product. Maple syrup is an extractive of the maple tree. It's a very sweet and lovely extractive. Uh, you might want to eat maple syrup, but you definitely don't want to eat turpentine. Not a good thing, <laughs> but it's still an extractive nonetheless. Um, wood species that have high volumes of extractives, put another way, wood species that have a lot of oil and a lot of resin in the wood, do a couple things. First, we know that oil and water don't mix. So if it's an oily wood, water is going to be repelled by the wood species itself. Second, oil and resin in the wood, it doesn't taste very good, which means the bugs don't like to eat it. And one of the things that really causes rot, certainly decay and rot can be caused by water, but the faster thing that causes rot is bugs. Bugs going in and eating and, and essentially pulverizing the innards of a board and turning it into mush. You get that soft, punky interior or even spalting that can occur both from bugs, but also fungus. It's those things, those resins, the sugars, the sweetness that makes a board attractive to bugs, but also to plants like fungus. The highly resinous stuff that could be simply just bitter to the taste, the bugs don't eat it because it tastes horrible and they'll leave it alone. Or in some instances, it kills them. <laughs> you know, it's like eating poison berries out of a, of a bush in the wild. You get really sick and you might die. The same thing happens to the bugs. There are many plants, many trees out there where if the bugs eat it, they die. And the bugs just learn. Instinctively, they know, don't eat this, it's going to kill us. Or they don't and they die. But 
it's those resins, those oils that prevent the rot, not only by repelling water, but repelling the bugs as well. Examples of this would be Western red cedar, a very resinous wood, just cut Western red cedar and the smell that permeates the room will tell you it's a resinous wood. Likewise, Alaskan yellow cedar. Alaskan yellow cedar will clear your sinuses in an instant once you start cutting it. Highly, highly volatile resinous wood. Um, Douglas fir is a good example. Um, Very resinous wood, but I'm going to talk about fir a little bit later because it's got some other things in there. Um, Teak, very oily, incredibly oily. Also waxy and silica rich because teak grows in, in quite sandy soil. It actually sucks sand pure silica up into the wood. Well, I've talked about caulk earlier around your tub. Well, what is caulk normally made out of? You can get silicone caulk, silica, silicone. Yeah, it's all the same thing. So teak is like the king of the exterior woods because it's super oily, it's waxy, and it has an incredibly high silica content. So kind of like kind of like Tylos, but not Tylos. I mean, it's still the same kind of principle, but the wood itself is like permeated with silica. In fact, a lot of times teak will have kind of a glint or a shimmer to it in the sun because there's such a high silica content. This is one of the big differences, uh, differences, (laughs) but the emphasis on the wrong syllable there, the big difference between genuine like Burmese teak and plantation grown teak. The teak that's grown in Indonesia, the teak that's grown in India or Africa, does not have that same silica content. And oftentimes you might find that it looks kind of similar, but it ends up not being good for like marine quality because it doesn't have that silica water repellents. You'll also find massive color differences. A lot of plantation teak can be a lot splotchier and maintain that splotchiness, whereas the genuine teak will actually mellow out over time and oxidation. The lack of silica, just the wrong chemical makeup of plantation teak makes the color appear differently because that silica isn't there. Um, you know, you look at things like Sapili, Yuli, Maranti, a lot of those mahogany type woods, and they're very resinous. They're also quite oily. So these are the things that are making them good exterior, exterior grade woods. It's those extractives, those oils, those resins that you find. The next thing we can talk about, um, is grain, the structure of the wood itself. This is not going to necessarily repel bugs. It's not going to repel water. Water is going to win every, every day. But if you have a wood that's super, super dense um, and it has very, very small pores, there's just less place for the bugs to get into and less place for the water to get into. Now, I said water will always win. You can take a piece of hard maple, tiny, tiny pores, almost microscopic pores, incredibly dense wood, and you can stick it in water. The water will get there. It will eventually soak its way in and and saturate the board entirely, but it's going to take a heck of a lot longer than a piece of red oak with ginormous pores that are all in neatly ordered rings. It is a ring porous wood. So there's these little like express highways into the center of the board for the water to go. The diffuse porous nature of hard maple means there's really not a pore that's going to run from end to end on a board. And they're scattered all over the place with a lot of heavy, dense material in between the pores that it takes a lot longer for the wood for the water to saturate into it so a denser species generally a harder species is going to repel the elements a lot better than um, a less dense species so we look at something like white oak well white oak certainly has the tylos but it's also quite dense the areas between the pores are very dense so that it's got that going for it as well not only the tylos but the density of the wood makes it a good exterior species. But then you look at something like Western red cedar, which is very low density, 
very, very low weight, but also very low density. I mean, it's just kind of a spongy wood, very, very soft because of that, but it's the extractives, the oils and the resins in the Western red cedar that make it water resistant and bug resistant. So you can, you can mix and match these things. If you took a species that had a high resin and oil content, but a much higher density, you would have kind of the perfect outdoor wood, AKA teak, (laughs) higher density wood, high resin, high oil content. Again, and, and actually Tylos and the fact that it's silica, the perfect wood. You mix all those together and mix and match and, and stuff. So technically hard maple, I would not consider to be an exterior wood, but hard maple will work. You could use hard maple in outdoor furniture. You would want to seal up the end grain a lot more. And there's all kinds of clear penetrating finishes or epoxy finishes that you could put. So if you made like uh, a chair, an outdoor chair out of maple and you epoxied the bottoms that came into contact with the ground, that chair would actually last quite well for quite some time. Is it the best outdoor wood? No, because the, the fact that it won't repel water that it won't repel the bugs. And there's the big weakness with maple because what does hard maple make? It makes syrup, which is super sweet and the bugs love it. So even though the extract is made in pull, you're not dealing with a, you know, a sticky syrupy piece of hard maple. You know, you don't pick up maple and think, oh, it's sticky as syrupy. No, no, that's not the case. But that is permeated throughout the wood, making the wood itself sweet to the taste and the bugs will eventually go after it. But it's going to last a lot longer than something like you know, much softer, perfect example, soft maple or red maple, big difference in density, slightly larger pores and soft maple, a chair made of hard maple is going to last quite a bit longer outside than a chair made out of soft maple, apparently the same wood at face value, but that density, that hardness makes the difference there. The, the larger, slightly larger pores and soft maple maple mean that the word water can get into it a lot easier than the tiny, tiny pores of hard maple. So pore size, density, and and the way the pores are ordered is going to play into that to some respect. I wouldn't choose an exterior wood based solely on this factor, though. We've talked about this where, you know, the the density of, of teak makes it a better exterior species than Western red cedar. They're both good exterior species. If if I were push came to shove and I was using maple for an exterior piece of furniture, I would probably paint it. And there's the end all be all, right? If you really want to quote, seal things up and protect from the elements, put a coat of paint over it. (laughs) But there may be many out there who are adverse to the whole idea of using paint. And frankly, paint is a film finish, which means water can get under it and cause it to flake and peel, which is why painted furniture will often peel over time. Not often, it will peel over time. Water will always win in that instance. So then the other thing we can look at is really the availability and the size or kind of shape of the tree. Those are really two different factors, but I'm kind of lump them together because it comes down to availability. Um, if the tree is a yard tree or um, a field tree um, that gets a lot of sunlight and it's going to be kind of gnarly and branchy very quickly, it's probably not going to be made in the lumber a whole lot because you don't really get long straight sections. So you're not going to find a lot of examples. Mesquite is a great example here. Mesquite is a, is a great exterior wood, not a great campfire wood. No, I'm sorry. It is a great campfire wood. It's just, you don't want to have furniture made out of mesquite that's in a fire zone area because it will burn <laughs> quite nicely. Mesquite, lovely for burning, but mesquite is, is almost a bush. You know, it's, it's very gnarly, very low to the ground. It grows in areas that are very arid. So you're not going to find a long straight bowl of mesquite. You're going to find shorter, 
uh, stubby trunks. So you're not really making a lot of lumber out of that. Um, great water repellents. It's got a high volume of tylose in it that makes it great for water repellents, but being able to find larger boards of it to build outdoor furniture or build outdoor structures out of is very difficult. So availability makes it not a very good species for exterior wood. Douglas fir, on the other hand, grows super, super tall, large, bold trees, super straight. So you get these, you know, six by six, eight by eight timbers that are available in 20, 25, 30 foot long lengths, making it perfect for exterior structures like pergolas or timber frame houses where you've got exterior beams. Douglas fir and the availability of it based on its size, not only and availability because Douglas fir grows all over Canada and all over the Pacific Northwest, whereas mesquite, while it's widespread, it's mostly growing in arid areas. I think of Texas when I think of mesquite. And again, because of its size, it's just not a, a good species for making furniture or really making anything other than campfires. Another good example of this, oftentimes when we talk about North American domestic species, hardwood species for exterior, we talk about white oak and people are always going, well, what about black locusts? You know, nobody's ever mentioning black locusts. Well, there's a perfect example of availability. A, black locust left to its own devices is quite gnarly. It branches very quickly. It's a very crooked tree. You don't get long, straight bowls. So getting long, straight lumber out of it is very difficult. Also, all those branches mean knots. So getting clear material is very difficult. In general, black locust produces a lower grade of material because of the fact that it is gnarly and very branches out very, very quickly. The second thing about black locust is in many instances, many states, it's listed as invasive and actually illegal to plant and grow in the state. I think there's like 17 or 18 states in the United States that have outlawed black locusts. You can't grow it, nor can you bring it into the state. The trade is prohibited because it's a highly invasive tree. It's also a root sucking tree. So not only does it grow um, a lot, it kills the trees around it. So it's, it's got, it's got a bad rap. Certainly there's a lot of people who are trying to kind of, uh, clean up the, the torrid past of black locusts because it is chock full of tylose. It is so incredibly weather resistant. That's actually a ground contact rated species. Black locust more often than not, when it is grown specifically for lumber, it's grown for fence posts. It's not grown to be particularly long or particularly large in diameter. It's grown to be a post. Basically strip the bark off, stick it in the ground. There's your post. So you're growing like six inch diameter trees. Well, a little bit more than that because you do want to strip off the sapwood. Eight inch diameter trees turned into a six inch, five inch, maybe four inch fence post. So you don't need particularly long um, boards. You just need poles. So you're essentially growing poles. Um, you're not cutting the board or cutting that, that trunk into individual boards. You're stripping it down to, um, a post really. And, and it's phenomenal as an exterior species. So there's a lot of people saying we should grow this more, but because the fact that if you don't actively manage a black locust stand, it's going to get out of control. It's going to turn gnarly. It's going to branch. It's going to turn into material that isn't good lumber producing wood, but it's also going to probably kill the trees around it because of that root sucking nature of it. A lot of people will say if managed properly, black locust could be the ultimate lumber species, but that is a tough sell to make when it's not, there isn't a viable commercial market outside of making posts and, and the 
call them plantations, if you will, the, the managed black locust stands that exist now are managed exclusively for making posts. There hasn't been a market that's been created, or shall we say a reason to grow more mature black locusts, taller, larger diameter bowls. And it's very difficult to say, okay, well, I'm going to create a market by creating the availability. In other words, I'm going to wait 80 years actively, actively managing this forest for 80 years. Because as I said, if you leave it alone, it's going to get out of control and kill a lot of the stuff around it. And it's going to start to branch pretty heavily. So you have to manage a black locust stand much more than you would like cherry or white oak or red oak. So it's going to require active management for 80 some years with zero payoff. And then you just hope that at the end of that 80 years, when you fell all those trees, you're going to be able to get a decent price for it. In other words, there's going to be demand for it on the open market. So it's very difficult to create a new species, a market for a new species, unless you already have quite a bit of it. Well, considering how long it's going to take to get larger qualities of larger size trees to get better quality boards, it's really difficult. And because black locust, while it has a wide geographic distribution, the fact that it's outlawed and don't quote me on the 17 state thing, but just for the sake of argument, because it's outlawed in, in, you know, a quarter of the United States of America, it's just not commercially viable. So I hear people often saying, well, you, you talk about this for decking, but you don't talk about black locusts. Well, there's a reason for that. There's got a, quite a few strikes against it when it comes to being a commercially viable species. And it's always going to fight that uphill battle. I think it's a really cool species. It's got some cool fluorescent um, uh, attributes to it. In fact, I talked about this probably 20, 30 episodes ago. But yeah, that availability and the natural um, tendency for it to, to branch very quickly and grow kind of short means that it will always be classified as a secondary or tertiary exterior wood because of that availability, size, and shape of the tree. So long way of kind of bringing home that last point. But, you know, Douglas fir, great exterior species because it's super long, super big tree, super straight, and hugely available. Black locust, exactly the opposite. But oh no, on paper, if you look at the technical specs, black locust is actually a better exterior grade species because of the tylose that's in it in such large abundance. Um, pricing certainly is an issue. Um, teak is a fantastic exterior wood, probably the best exterior wood out there, but it's super expensive. And by the way, as of last episode, it's illegal. There's an embargo on Burmese teak. So even more expensive. It's not CITES listed, but it's on its way. Spanish cedar is a great, great exterior wood, but it's a CITES listed species, meaning that it's very, very heavily limited, very heavily regulated and very expensive. The price is, is a real issue. So you've got not only availability, but price fighting against a great, technically a great exterior species. You know, um, <laughs> Sorry, it's it, the price just makes it not a really good viable species for that. And then I guess the last thing you could look at could possibly be weight, you know. And again, this depends upon how you're using it. You know, if you're building a deck, weight may not be an issue. Um, I guess it depends on how high the deck is suspended and over what and what kind of you know abuse that deck's going to take. But the most residential deck weight is not going to be that big of a deal because you're not moving around. Siding, on the other hand, you got to lift that siding into place, and if you've got a 20 foot run of bevel edge siding that's super, super heavy. It could be a royal pain to install and quite dangerous to install. So you could use white oak for siding, or you could use Western red cedar for siding. Um, the weight difference is market between those two species, both great exterior species. 
Um, Sapili is often used for siding, but it rarely is used for thicker siding. It's used for much, much thinner siding that usually has something underneath it as well because of that weight factor. So that's something to think about. Also, the structural tendency will often kind of directly relate to the weight side of things. Douglas fir isn't really used for siding because structurally it's, it's the backbone. You know, it's got such strong structure to begin with that that's the, what the actual timber frame structure is made out of. And then another lighter exterior species is used to clad that, or maybe not at all if it's a timber frame structure. So it's those things, the tylose content, the extractives, the grain structure, the availability, or basically the way the tree grows naturally, price and weight. So that's, that's really what six things to think about in, I would say in order. Um, the first two being equal tylos and extractives are kind of on equal footing as far as their effectiveness for exterior woods, but they are two very different things. Third, most important would be the grain. And then you're getting down to the availability and, and price. But again, it, it will depend on your specific circumstances. If you're creating like something really, really small, maybe you're turning a bowl, you need an exterior grade bowl. Like you want to make a bird bath, you know, or something like that. Well, mesquite could be great. Because you can get, you know, a small stump of mesquite and turn a great water resistant, waterproof vessel. It's kind of a weird example, isn't it? Bird bath? I don't know about that, but you get the idea. If you're making something small like that, mesquite could be a great solution for you. Teak could be a great solution for you because while it's expensive, if you're buying a small piece of it, it's not nearly as expensive, right? So, you know, I, I could list and I have listed specific species here that are good examples of exterior grade woods, but the important part is understanding what makes them good exterior species and kind of a, a hierarchy of what makes great exterior woods to just kind of eh, woods, you know, genuine mahogany be a good example. It's a great weather resistant wood, but it's a little soft and you know, there are much better ones that have the similar, similar color palette like Sapili or Udali. So there we go. There's my treatise on exterior woods. And I think with uh, that being said, let's get into some emails and answer some of your questions. Um, and actually I should, I should mention that, um, this episode was actually inspired by a question from Simon who was asking the whole black locust question. It's like, why, why, like, why is black locust never talked to? And what are the black, the con, pros and cons of black locust for something like Douglas fir? So hopefully, uh, Simon, I hope that, uh, explains the whole thing to you. There is, um, it's kind of interesting because there's a, there's a, a treatise that's written by the um, Cornell College of Agriculture about black locusts and how it has a lot of different uses. And it's kind of a pro black locust article, but at the same time, it kind of outlines all the outlines, all the bad things about locusts um, at the same time. So I'll actually link to that article because it is very interesting. And, and at face value, you look at black locusts and go, why isn't it more popular? Why there's some really great features of this, but <laughs> they spend a lot of time talking about why it's not real popular and you can begin to understand why there really isn't enough motivation to create a commercial market for it. And if there's nobody willing to buy it, nobody's going to spend the time to grow it. You know, you would love to think that there's lots of, of wonderfully altruistic people out there spending their lives managing a black locust forest for 80 some years with zero payoff whatsoever and quite a bit of expense. Just doesn't happen folks. Sorry. We need more Johnny Appleseeds in the world. But even then, Johnny Appleseed planted a bunch of stuff and moved on. He didn't care. He didn't manage it. There was no silvicultural going on there. In fact, maybe we have Johnny Appleseed to blame for the chestnut blight. Mm. Things to make you go, hmm. Anyway, moving on. Um, I had an interesting question from Kyle. 
and something I haven't really talked about before, but he said, um, I've, I've been loving learning about wood while uh, listening to your podcast at my day job as a green coffee buyer and educator. That brings me to my question. Are there similar jobs in the lumber industry for discovering, sourcing, and purchasing wood either for mills or retail operations? If so, how hard are those jobs to come by for industry outsiders? Is the lumber industry similar to coffee and that it's an incredibly small world of people? Uh, Kyle, I would say yes. Uh, yes to all of that. Um, there are jobs. It's called a purchaser. Um, usually most lumber yards are going to have at least one lumber buyer. Many have two. They have a domestic and an exotic lumber buyer or an import or domestic buyer. Um, in our case, we actually have three. Um, we have uh, an import buyer. Um, we have or an exotic buyer. We have a domestic buyer. And then we have uh, manufactured products like plywood and modified woods and things like that. Somebody specializing in that kind of everything else. In other words, if it's not domestic or exotic solid wood, the other buyer takes care of that. And this is pretty typical with most operations. Even the smallest operations will have a buyer and that buyer may also run the kiln. That buyer may also be the seller. It may be a one man operation, but buying is, is absolutely an issue um, that, that is going to require some very specific skill set. So the answer yes to your other questions is these jobs are kind of difficult to come by for someone from the outside. Someone with your experience that already has kind of experience in um, coffee producing countries, South America, Central America, that also happens to be where a lot of lumber comes from. So you may find that there's some carryover. I think you would have a better shot of that. But even then, you find that the lumber industry is quite insular um and uh, they know a lot of people and you know a lot of lumber buying is 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 based on building relationships certainly in the modern world of lacy compliance and cites and understanding supply chain and being able to document and prove your supply chain validity and legality it is important to have strong relationships in place from those you are buying from it's going to require visits it's going to require great understanding of the regulations it's going to require great understanding of the grades of lumber and, and how that grade will vary from country to country and from species to species. So there is a lot of information you need to know. And I don't think this is specific to the lumber industry, but I'm sad to say a lot of people perfectly willing to take advantage of your lack of knowledge to uh, rip you off, in other words. So, you know, any lumber yard that's going to hire someone to do their purchasing who doesn't understand the lumber industry is taking a pretty big gamble. In other words, it's not really considered an entry-level job. The only way it would be an entry-level is kind of like an apprentice type thing where you have an experienced lumber buyer who's willing to take someone on and kind of have them shadow for years <laughs> before they're able to do it on their own. There's a lot of contacts. There's a lot of understanding of the materials, the species, and the individual local issues. And this applies with domestic as well. My domestic buyer knows so many different um, foresters, lumberjacks, if you will, knows a lot of mill operators, knows a lot of kiln operators in every region of the United States. And it's important to know these things and know these people because in a lot of ways, especially in the domestic side, side of things, it's a lot of non-electronic, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of, who do you know, literally pulling out a Rolodex and calling around to some people. It's not really something you can search for on the web. 
um, or submit an RFQ on the web or something like that. It's still very old school in that respect. So yeah, it would be particularly difficult. And if I were in charge of hiring for a lumber company, I would strongly caution against someone who does not have industry experience because of the specific nature of buying. And I would imagine it'd be exactly the same way in the coffee industry. So yeah, there we go. If you're interested in a career in lumber buying, it's probably best to start as a grader and work your way into purchasing from there. So then you would understand the lumber and the eccentricities of the whole thing. So this brings me to a voicemail actually that I received um, about, um, sorry, I received this from Sean about um, logs and the checks that are developing in logs. Hey Shannon, I have a question about the differences in wood movement when you store lumber horizontally versus vertically. I have a stack of logs that are about two feet by two feet. So two feet long and two feet in diameter uh, that I reclaimed from a family that was chopping down a tree in my church's neighborhood. Uh, I'm going to use these logs mostly for bowl turning or very small projects. So I'm not looking to get traditional long plank lumber out of them. But I noticed the logs that I stacked in a traditional I guess flat style, like you would see on a uh, uh, you know wood cutting pile, um, they're checking more, uh, being air dried for the past year, um, covered under my porch, than the ones that I've stacked vertically, where the grain orientation is pointing towards the sky. Uh, is there a reason why you would see more checking in horizontal logs versus vertical logs? And should I be setting all of my logs that way if I'm trying to get uh, decent uh, bull turning stock or at least decent short stock for small uh, projects, things like that? Uh, appreciate any information you could give. Um, Appreciate both of your podcasts and your channel and everything that you're doing in the community. Please keep it up. We'll keep listening. Okay, Sean. Um, good question. And I'm don't have like a, an immediate answer that springs to mind. Like I know this to be the case, but I think I can make a pretty strong educated guess here that um, just based upon my understanding of wood, what's going on. First of all, if you take a log and lie it, on the ground, you know, horizontally, the whole bottom side of it is not getting any kind of air movement. There's no ventilation over it. So there's really no evaporation that's happening. So that side of the log is staying quite damp, very moist for those that love that word. Whereas the top of the log, it's getting air movement over it. It's also getting the sun on it. Now you said it's covered. So in this instance, you know, at least you've got that going for you, but think about logs lying in a log yard, the sun's baking down on one side, warming it up, but also causing evaporation. Now you're still going to see that evaporation in your case to a lesser extent because it's, it's out of the sun and you've got it covered, but you're still seeing more air movement, more evaporation, more moisture loss on the top of that log than you would on the side of the log. That's whether it's on the direct ground or not, or just on the concrete, there's going to be more moisture there. So you could lessen this just by stickering it, by putting it up on a bolster, but you also just have the whole gravity aspect of things. You know, any moisture that's in that log is going to work its way down to the bottom of the log just through capillary movement. Um, also up from the ground at the same time. 
So that's why you're going to see a larger differential between the moisture content on the top of that log and the moisture content in the bottom of the log. And it's really that differential causing the tension that causes the cracks to open, thereby releasing that tension. That's what the check in a log is all about. It's, you know, pressure tension builds up and builds up as you get that differential in movement. And then it cracks in order to relieve that tension. Standing a log up on its end, A, I've talked about gravity drying before, where the moisture, the free water that's in that log is allowed to literally just run out the bottom under the influence of gravity. Second of all, now you've got movement of air that's kind of all the way around. Now be leaning up against a wall or whatever, but even then you're getting a lot more air contact around the entire log. And the gravity is causing moisture to kind of drain towards the bottom. So you may still see um, some checking on the, actually, no, I think on the bottom, you wouldn't see that much checking because you're going to have a higher moisture content down there and less tension being built up. The checking you might see would be on the top um, because it's being dried out. But even then, if it's uniformly drying, you're going to see less tension checking. And I think that's really what you're seeing that's going on. The last thing I will say is because you're dealing with shorter log blanks, two feet, three feet long, there's a lot less longitudinal fibers there kind of holding things together. So you may actually be see, uh, you may actually be seeing checking along the side, along the length of the log, because there's just not much beam strength, if you will, holding the thing together. So you think, well, you know, why are lumber yards, sawmills storing their logs on the side? A, you can't stand all the logs up because logs are really heavy <laughs> and they would probably crush anything they laid up against or a stiff wind would cause them to crush a shed that you lean against or building you leaned against. Plus it's very hard and heavy to stand a log up on its end. B, because we're talking about like eight foot, 10 foot, 12 foot long logs, the checking that you're seeing is really relegated just to the ends of the board. You're not going to see a lot of checking opening up along the sides because you've got so much strength for those long grain fibers running 12, 20 feet down the entire length of that log. A short section, two feet long, and I've had many sections that I've like salvaged off the side of the road thinking I'll do some bowl work with this or whatever, that will start to crack apart because there's just less holding it together. And that may be what you're seeing more than anything else. Um, and that the same thing would apply when you stand that up. There's less length of log for the water to drain evenly out of. So you're getting that more uniform drainage that's happening while standing on its end. It's also a lot easier to stand a log up on its end. The thing you got to worry about, though, is mold on the bottom side where it's in contact with the ground. You're going to get a lot of growth down there and you're probably going to end up having to trim several inches off the log at that point. Um, to defeat the the mold issue that's going on down there. It's an interesting question. As I said, there's not like a, absolutely, this is what's going on. This is just kind of my my hypothesis, if you will, um, based upon my understanding of, of, of wood and how the whole thing works. So this brings, just while we're talking about wood structure, Aaron had a question. It said, um, uh, I have one question, only somewhat lumber related. We all know that trees have rings, one per year. But when a tree grows older, it also gets taller, which means the top isn't as old as the bottom. So does that mean that it has fewer rings at the top than at the bottom? If that is so, then that means that some of the rings at the bottom don't make it to the top. Is that visible in the wood? So the answer is yes. Um, the, the rings at the top, they're going to be fewer rings at the top than there are at the bottom. The important part to think about is it's not so much rings. Certainly we when we cut a tree and we look at the end grain, we can count the growth rings. 
when a tree adds an annual layer, which is what a growth ring is, every year the tree grows a little bit more, and that's what creates that ring. It's actually the early growth and the late growth that produce the actual ring. The higher density of the late growth produces a darker line, which then shows up as a ring. The lighter line in between those dark lines is also part of that annular ring. It's the less dense, faster growing early growth stuff. So it's actually that contrast between density of early and late growth that creates a visible ring. And that's all one annular layer. Rather than think of it in terms of a ring, think of it as a cone. So I'm going to date myself a little bit, but think of the office water cooler that has that little dispenser, that paper cup dispenser next to it. And they're not like Dixie cups, they're cones. They're those little paper cones and they all come out the bottom. Take that stack of paper cones, flip it upside down. So the point of the cone faces the top. That's a tree. That's what we're talking about. And every year there's another cone that slots down over top of it. And what's happening is that outer layer, um, is it's like sheathing the entire tree. The entire tree is growing outward, expanding in diameter with one annular growth ring per year. But the height comes from stacking those cones one on top of another. So at the bottom, you're gonna see all of those cones, all of them stacked together. That's why you can look at the cross section of a trunk and see it's grown this many years. If you go up to the top, well, there's not as many growth rings because of those cones taper, right? That's what a cone is. It tapers in length. And what you're seeing at the very top is the last annular growth ring and whatever kind of fits inside that from those nested cones all the way down the trunk. So it, it, that's the best way to think of it. it you, you, we call them rings and that's what they are rings, but we tend to think of rings in the terms of a perfect cylinder. They're not cylinders, they're cones. So in that actually leads me to why is, is that visible in the wood? And yes, it is visible in the wood. If you look at, um, say, a flats on board, you'll see those cathedral patterns in the wood, and you're seeing that point. That cathedral comes to a point. That's where a cone is actually running out. Now, you may see points at both the bottom and the top of cathedral. That is essentially where that growth ring is ending. So not only is the growth ring ending across the width of the board, and that's where you see the vertical lines on the board, but the growth ring is also ending somewhere along the length of the board. And that's what causes that little cathedral pattern, that curve up and back. That point, if you will, is where a growth ring ends on its climb towards the tree or possibly begins on, on along the length of the tree or starts again. That's what tells you that it's a series of cones rather than a bunch of perfect cylinders sheathing the tree all the way up. And this kind of leads uh, directly to a question, my last question from Chris, who lives in the Adirondacks and he loves cross-country skiing. <clears throat> Over the years, I've grown interested in traditional wooden skis and I'm looking to build a pair for myself. For my research, they're usually made of Cortison beech, ash, or elm, which is easy enough, but it's further suggested that the trunk be towards the tip of the tree with the canopy, the tree's canopy, the leaves towards the tail. So the top of the tree is in the tail of the ski. The thinking is that there's a subtle shark skin effect to the grain orientation. So you can glide forward, but get a gentle little bit of grip on the push. Interesting. I never heard that before. I suppose that makes sense. I don't know. I wonder if that's one of those wives tales. Does it really make sense? I haven't actually used wooden skis before, so I, I don't know. I'll just go with it. But he says, is there any idea how to determine the growth direction of a board when pulling it off the rack? So this goes back to Aaron's question about those concentric cones stacked on top of one another. You can look at a tree 
And first of all, just by looking at the ingrain and seeing the orientation of the growth rings, you can figure out what's towards the inside of the tree and what's toward the outside of the tree. The concavity, those concave circles, that pointing towards the inside of the tree, the convexity pointing towards the outside of the tree. So then if you look on the inside face of the board or look at the outside face of the board, you can determine where do the, the points of the board face, those cathedrals. We're talking about the pointy cathedrals. They're facing one way or the other on the inside or the outside of the board. This also happens to be a great way to determine the planing direction of a board. So if the cone, um, if you're on the outside face of the tree pointing towards the bark, the cones are going to be stacked on top of one another. So if you are actually planing towards the point of the cone, you're kind of think of it like planing downhill. Uh, you're planning towards that point. It's going to be working downhill. It's going to work a lot better. The other analogy is petting the cat from the head to the tail. The fur lies back nicely. You pat from the tail to the head, the fur, you know, bunches up and it might piss off the cat at the same time. So on the outside of the tree, if you're planning to that point, you're actually working downhill towards the grain. On the inside of the tree, if you're planning to the point, you're kind of going the wrong way. You could be going up underneath the next cone that's stacked on top of it. And that is, is going against the grain. So you have to determine what's the inside of the tree and what's the outside of the tree. And the points on the outside of the tree will be the top of the tree. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So that's the way you want to look at it. Um, you have to be cautious though, when you look at cathedral patterns, because sometimes cathedral patterns can also just, um, show the board's location in the tree if the board was cut on a slight bias in other words the the long axis of the board doesn't isn't perfectly parallel with the long axis of the tree if it's slightly canted those cathedral patterns can appear very differently but still you can look at a board and generally see a slight taper as you move from one end to the other and that taper is always going to the, the narrow section of the taper is always going to be the top of the tree so there we go that's kind of the easiest way I know of to determine that direction. A lot of times it's just easier to pull out a, a bunch of boards and look at them and you will see very quickly there is a difference from the top of the tree to the bottom of the tree. And you'll start to see that pattern showing up. So that'll do it for another episode. Kind of an interesting conglomeration of questions. I definitely appreciate you guys sending in the questions and I hope the whole exterior wood conversation helped. If you have questions about exterior woods and choosing woods for exterior projects, let me know be some great um, feedback in the coming weeks. So thanks as always for the questions. Thanks as always for my patrons for supporting the show. One more time, if you go to patreon.com slash lumber update, you can learn how to support the show yourself. Thanks a lot, everybody, and go buy some lumber. <laughs>